Are you submitting yourself to the possibility or the existence of a God who has claimed to communicate it in an authoritative way, or are you going to continue to stand above and sort of make arbitrary judgments about what you consider to be divinely inspired or not? Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys today? Wonderful. Yeah, good, Nick. Thanks. Is your faith hanging by a thread again now that we have congressional hearings about the realness of UFOs? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's going to really shake everything up you know other things did you did you guys did you ever read c.s lewis's uh uh space trilogy yeah yeah, yeah i did yeah yeah i kind of like that idea of earth being on court the l deals that's right <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah 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 no i don't it's interesting to me i mean i don't know i mean it's it's certainly i think i reviewed a book actually for some journal about um that included the possibility of aliens and you know i think the consensus was figure out what they say and try to preach to them sort of you know how, how they, what their language, their what their language is saying, that's yeah. right what they figure out their language is and, um yeah but it'll be um <laughs> it'll be interesting to see the results of those the hearings there's been so much wonderful things that have come out of so many senate hearings before. right, right. i'm sure that we'll get just straightforward clarity um, <laughs> on the whole issue <laughs> we'll Why get some honest we? questions and forthright answers no doubt that's right well, you guys, I made a mistake this week. Uh, we had discussed talking about biblical inerrancy today, the idea that the Bible cannot err or be wrong. And so I went and watched some videos, and then I went and watched more videos and more videos, and then I was down the rabbit hole, and it was all last night and this morning. Uh, <laughs> literary devices, the dangers inherent therein, four different kinds of inerrancy, and more. So my brain is kind of swimming right now. Apologies in advance. So eventually, and I thought this might be a place for us to start, I did run across one idea that I thought was really interesting that was new to me. Somebody who claimed to, at the same time, be biblically orthodox and faithful and not an inerrantist. Their reasons for their not affirming inerrancy were things like, their impossible moral conundrum around the Lord commanding the murder of innocent children during the conquest of Canaan, as well as some of the narrative inconsistencies in the New Testament. Now, I had always assumed that inerrancy, as opposed to literalism, which I'm sure we'll talk about, just went hand in hand with biblical fidelity and orthodoxy, and that a rejection of inerrancy went hand in hand with liberalism and biblical revisionism. But here I was watching somebody deny inerrancy, in certain places at least, and make the claim that that denial did not put the rest of the Bible at risk. So I wanted to ask you guys what inerrancy is, why is it important, if it's important, can you be biblically faithful and reject it, and how might we go about reconciling some of these supposed errors in Scripture? So Matt, what does biblical inerrancy claim? That there are no errors in the Scripture. <laughs> no errors. <Okay. laughs> now, um, 
so the, I guess the classic definition of it, I guess it's a, a, a recent classic definition of it is the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, mm-hmm. um, which James Boyce and uh, R.C. Sproul and J.I. Packer was part of that, putting it together. A whole bunch of evangelical scholars got together um, and and wrote that out. And if you if, if if our listener wants to go and get a really good full-orbed understanding of what inerrancy is, as most people use that term, you want to go read that. Um, and read it's not long. It's totally readable. Exactly. We have it on our church website as part of our document that we want people, if they're investors, to, to affirm. So, best so inerrancy is uh, is you know there's a lot of myths out there about, about what inerrancy is. Some some of the on, on the left would say that it's something that uh, American evangelicals were on, uh, just latched onto post Enlightenment. European evangelicals didn't see the the need for it as much, but we were so um, it's kind of like a, 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 a part of the uh, consequence of the culture wars and the need to be certain about things that that people before before the modern era didn't have um, but you know I think I think that that's pretty much been blown out of of the water by by people who have done some good research in patristics and seen that well the the, the, the doctrine of inerrancy as, as it's articulated in the Chicago statement wasn't there of course. The, the concept of inerrancy was, I mean, the, right. the, the, the notion that Augustine, for example, would say that the Bible can err and still be quote unquote true is the, 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 those two categories didn't exist distinct from one another in, in Augustine's mind. In his mind, he said it very clearly. If you, uh, if you come across a passage in the Bible that you think it doesn't make sense, or you find two passages that, that, that contradict one another, the problem is either mis, uh, mistranslation or you're wrong. You've misunderstood it in some way. You need to, the, the, the error is always on the reader's part when he when he or she sees um, sees error in the text. So so it's not a it's not a it's not an, a, an invention of American Christianity. It's not an invention of I guess evangelicalism post enlightenment. It's something that goes back through the ages all the way. I think it's even taught in scripture. Although that's another objection you'll hear you'll hear people give is that well inerrancy is something that you can't the you can't prove in the scriptures well i, you know, this, I, I think the scriptures cannot be broken i think jesus uh, uh has a definitive word about that so some of the aspects of the argument that maybe you're alluding to nick are uh can you can you believe that the bible is true and yet still there might be some mistakes in certain categories like if you find a historical, let's say you find an alleged historical error, does that mean that you can't believe the Bible is inerrant in all that it says theologically or doctrinal? You know, the theological truths of the Bible are, are not hindered, some would say, by the discovery of a historical error or some minor contradictions here and there, because the, because the, the uniform voice of scripture about, about the, the essential doctrines is, is this clear. Other others might say, well, uh, the, and this is furthermore to the left. Uh, you can find God's voice in the Bible, but and where you do, that's inerrant, but not, but not, right. but, but not all the other, all the other things. Um, all of that, all of that, though, I think leaves some significant, leaves a reader with some significant problems to over, overcome. If you think that God speaks in the scriptures inerrantly, but that the scriptures themselves aren't inerrant, then you you really are left with something else other than the scriptures being the measure. And that is something else usually being human reason, human scholarship, human opinion, um, yeah. which then becomes the rule of the church. 
if you say, well, there's some historical errors, but doctrinal, doctrinally, it's 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 without error. Well, you know, the Christian faith is a historical faith. That's right. Yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> you, Our you main claim to, is a historical one. Right. You begin to introduce historical errors into the scriptures, and and then, well, that the that category of history is our doctrine. So you, you can't, or at least it's a core part of our doctrine. So you can't just do away with that. The one last thing I'll let, I'll let JD come in, but the, the person I know you were talking about, because I listened to her videos too, who's I, who I like, who's very, very personable. And I, I have respect for her, Dr. Lydia McGrew. McGrew I, I'm her, yeah. Huh? Lydia McGrew. Yeah. yeah, McGrew. And, uh, you know, one of her chief obje- objections, she said, was that, she had a moral problem yeah. with with God commanding uh, the murder of babies in in the Old Testament, and so that for her didn't square with the the, the natural law position on life that you know it's always wrong to take the the life of an innocent child. Those those kinds of objections to inerrancy, I think, are far more. And I say this with all the all due respect for Dr. McGrew far more dangerous because I agree. and not only are you in the other objections you're setting human reason or human scholarship or human whatever above 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 this above the text but in this kind of objection you're setting human morality as the arbiter of of whether or not god said something and that gets you into some really dangerous dangerous territory uh, i think there's a play there's a there's a there's a logical reasonable case that should and can be made about the old testament and god uh, commanding those commands but that's but setting aside those those particular texts, the, the principle of setting human morality as the judge over divine revelation, that gets you in the territory where you're not very far away from some LGBTQ arguments and and, and whatnot. Yeah. yeah, I found that argument, um, you know, about the genocide. I mean, I think that the, the I don't even faith the conquest of Canaan. I think that's yeah. more appropriate to call it. You know, that is a troubling passage, but not so much in the sense that it was commanded, but that it should bring a sense of reverential fear and awe to um, the way that God um, enacts his judgment at times through people um, and chose to, in this case, um, you know, it was a merciless judgment. I mean, it was the law um, into the world, you know, uh, writ large, that it was um, because this idea that there are innocent people is not uh, the Bible, is is not part of the Bible anyway. And again, I don't want to have, I don't, think there's any reason to to minimize or to make light of the account in any way other than to you know think that you're sort of like Isaiah looking up into the heavens or or Job you know with the the God thundering from the whirlwind or something and saying but for the grace of me go you I mean that's that's sort of the idea and I mean I get you know it is it is um dramatic and troubling and brutal and 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 you know and, and we've talked through it before in the past and I think you know, in part, people's people's concern with it is usually it usually it usually is expressed, and this is not probably the case with Dr. McGrew, but when I've run into it, is people have a basically a general rejection of the wrath of God um, as as a concept. Right. Period. Um, they think that basically everyone's good. And then they have an idea about what they would do if they were God, and it wouldn't involve being mean to anyone. And so then they read something like this, and they say, well, clearly, um, how could you believe in a God like this? And I said, well, uh, tell me more about the God you believe in, and let's see, let's see how that maps onto Scripture, as it were. Because, you know, we have all 
in, in Adam um, initiated, you know, we have all inherited uh, his sin and perpetuated the, the curse and are on a death sentence of some time, you know, the wages that our lives will bring us will be death. But for, you know, those found in Christ, uh, this is, this is um, one sort of large funeral writ large uh, around the world, I mean, which is obviously a very dark thing to say, but for the light that has been given us in Christ. And so I think, um, you know, when I read it, I, I have a, again, like a growing sense of reverential fear, you know, and then when I read just similarly speaking, when I allow, you see God allowing his own people to go through trials and tribulations, you know, not just being the, the enactor of his judgment, but the recipients of his judgment. And it also, like we've talked about a couple of weeks ago with respect to um, abortion, you know, it also sends a shiver down my spine in that respect, because you say, well, this is, you know, God is not mocked. You know, it's a mighty thing to fall into the hands of the living Lord. And please spare us, bring us, um, you know, the nations will rage. And I pray that we will live in a time or in a time where you do not remove your hand of mercy from us. But we see in the Bible and throughout history when that happens. And that's a perfect example in the, the account of the conquest of Canaan. I did find in some other videos, <laughs> Dr. McGrew indeed ably defending what we would think of as the other side, a, what sounds much more like an inherent inerrantist defense of some of the, you know, the supposed contradictions in the gospel stories. One that um, jumped out to me, um, <clears throat> one that we've probably all talked about a lot was the placement of the temple cleansing, um, how the synoptics have it late in Holy Week and John has it much earlier. And I think pretty much without thinking, I've always just sort of gone along with the idea that John put it there to make a point. And Dr. McGrew says, well, hold on a minute. If you're going to say that he takes what she calls this literary device and that he can just move something in time, then what else is moved in time? What else is invented? What else is moved from here to there or changed? And she wants to say there are two temple cleansings, one early and one late, and John records the one and the synoptics were the other. So she's, she's very much a defender of the text. The, um, the, the question I have for you guys is, do you need to use the literary device theory like that to be an inerrantist? I, I don't think so. I, I typically I agree with her actually about John. I think I, I speak to her. I think there were there were actually historically two cleansing uh, temple cleansings. I think that that's perfectly in line with uh, maybe why they got so mad at him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's why they're mad at him. But also, <laughs> like, I mean, the, the don't come back here. Don't come back. That's that's the final straw. We hung your picture behind the bar. You can't that's come. Right. Back. That's right. <laughs> Well, Leviticus 14, think about it. It's kind of interesting that, you know, there, there's the, the priest, when there's when there's corruption in the house, mold in the house, the priest goes in once, checks it out, tells him to clear That's the right. house out, and he goes back seven, uh, seven days later after a complete period. And if it's if, if it's still corrupted, it, it gets destroyed. And, yeah, and so right. you have you have you have Jesus, the high priest, going in and investigating investigate the house and finding yeah. corruptions twice. And so what happens? And you've got the, every stone and you've got the same pronouncement, you know, not one stone upon a stone will stand, you know, exactly. for, the, for the mold and the, the corruption of the house. I mean, it's 
yeah, exactly. it's, it's beautiful. In fact. So I think, I think McGree's right about that, but I also think, you know, I don't think you have to retreat. She, I, I listened to this long argument about like, okay, when in Theon and the uh, didactic texts from in Greek literature, do we find a, a episode or instances of these literary devices that uh, Mike Lacona and others are, are saying exist. And so, well, it, people, the average first century reader wouldn't, bat an eye to see uh, certain events move differently around the texts um, so that you have one thing happening in one, in one sequence in one gospel and another sequence another. Um, is there evidence of that in other, in other, uh, in other first century texts and other uh, literary, other texts bear the similar, similar literary devices? And big argument about whether that's, that's the case or not. In my, in my view, I just think if you take the four gospels themselves, you can see whether or not it's a, convention that was taught in any of the didactic literature I, I think that you can see matthew for example taking texts that he has from mark i mean maybe you don't agree with maybe you think mark matthew's written before mark but i think matthew's written after mark and matthew used mark as a, as a source for his for his gospel of course the ultimate source is the holy spirit i'm not <laughs> saying that the comment is good. set that aside um <laughs> but but you can see Matthew taking events that Mark narrates and telescoping them, like just, just just kind of summarizing them, not giving the full drawn out story that Mark has. So Mark has, for example, the synagogue ruler's daughter, Jairus's daughter episode, sandwiching the woman um, bleeding episode. Um, and Matthew just shortens that whole thing up into like real, real, real tight I, I don't think that he was trying to be deceptive. I don't think that he was, I don't think that he, Matthew was, um, was trying to uh, correct Mark. It's another thing that I kept hearing Dr. McGrew say is that Matthew's correcting Mark in these areas. Um, I, I just think that Matthew said, Hey, I've got this much, I've got this much papyrus. Um, <laughs> I want to put, I want to put all, I, I have a lot more to put into my gospel than Mark had to put in his gospel. So I'm going to just, I'm just going to summarize some of these things. And uh, people have Mark's gospel. They can go back and look at the more detailed version if they want. But I'm going to give you, I'm going to, I'm going to summarize and, and move on. So I don't think it was a, I don't think you would even classify those things as corrections or errors or contradictions. Those are just Matthew. And I don't even know if you can even qualify it, quantify it as a literary device. It's I don't just, think she does either. Yeah. It's just something that they, they were doing. I mean, uh, say so you see the same thing with Luke's use of, of, of Mark's material and uh, they do have different aims, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all have different That's aims. Right. And so they're going to be arranging the material differently. I don't know uh, that, that, that I, I don't agree that that's always a literary device. I don't agree that. Uh, so I agree with Lynn, Dr. McGrew on that, but I don't agree with her that rearranging materials in, in rearranging the chronology of the material is is necessarily something um, that would be considered an error hmm. or right. off 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 base. I think that's a that's a that's a stretch to me. She does try to make this distinction between places like in Matthew, for instance, where he sort of collects Jesus's sayings about a certain topic all in one place, and he just says he said this, and he said this, and he said this, without any intention of trying to make the reader understand that he said this. And then right. five minutes later, he right. said this. Right. I think that she's rightly making a distinction between that and other places where it seems like the gospel writers are trying to be more like historically intentional about he walked to this place and he did this, and then he went to this place and he did that. And I think that I hear her saying that the actual 
problem places that for her cause her to reject inerrancy are, are only a few, but that one is enough for her. Right. That one unanswerable thing, even if I think you and I might say, gosh, we haven't really figured out how that one works out yet, but we know that it must. That's what seems illogical to me. If you, if you, yeah. if you, if you have a whole, if you have worked out, you know, 97% of the, of the contradictions and alleged errors and you found they're not contradictions or errors, it stands to reason that instead of saying, well, I still have this, this 3% here that I can't work out. Therefore I can't say I'm in inheritance. It stands more to reasons to say that because this is God's word and she believes it's God's word because this is God's word. I'm going to say, you know what, probably I'm just not understanding how this fits together. That's right. Well, that's, I mean, that, that actually, I resonate with your criticism there. Um, uh, because personally speaking, you know, I don't know when, when was Chicago, when was the inerrancy to come out in 70 in the 70s? 73 or something like that. Well, yeah. if for whatever reason, when I was in college, it had come up again. So that was late nineties. Uh, but I remember having a real, um, I want to say dark night of the soul about this. Um, cause you know, considering some of the quote unquote obvious contradictions and then, you know, kind of being exposed to higher critical, to higher critical school and looking at JDEP and all of the various, you know, the Jesus seminar. I remember when that was uh, a thing. And, and I remember um, at the time it was, it was very helpful to go through because it revealed that my, my appreciation of two things, sort of the actual existence of God and, and also his pr uh, provision for communication in the world. I was not really appreciative of, well, either of those questions because, because my faith for, to what it, to extent that it was, was basically hinged upon this idea that I had to be able to prove um, in each and every case, uh, sufficiently for the, as it were, the culture despisers to to be able to to understand, and that was proving for a you know twenty one year old junior or senior in college very difficult to do. Um, and that's when I was grateful to be to run into the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy with that list of scholars and the relative sophistication that it, it allows for with respect to some of these quote unquote literary devices and things. You know, I mean, we read now like Richard Balcom's, you know, the sort of historical biographies and you read the, you know, people have not ceased in their defense for the authority and inspiration and fallibility of scripture. And I'm very grateful to them. Um, but personally speaking, it was like, a watershed event for me, because when I realized that if there is a God and he has uh, provided for the means of communication, then he's not going to err in that communication to us by his providential hand, um, as has the church um, and then the, the, you know, the people of Israel before always claimed about his, his provision through his word. And so then it was like, well, Okay, and then you go back and read the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, and you realize well, if there are seeming contradictions, well, then that's a limitation on our side, not with the with the scriptures. And time and scholarship has proven this out. You know, this is where we look at like archaeological finds, for instance. We look at the tireless examination of contemporary literature, of which there really is pretty scant, but nevertheless. And you come up with these things like Lacona's argument, you know, well, look at how people were taught to, you know, in rhetoric, look at how people were taught to write Greco-Roman biographies and, and, and down the line till you get back to the same question, which is that if there is, is, is God trustworthy and if he's trustworthy, can he communicate in a infallible, trustworthy way? And this has been the claim of the church down through the centuries. And so, you know, I'm no, I'm, it's not an ex, it's not one I'm an expert in uh, by any means, uh, but I'm grateful that there are people who have devoted their lives to these questions and to, um, you know, fleshing some of these 
uh, contradictions out and working through these issues. But I, for whatever reason, the white hot fire of um, doubt and fear that once spiked in my heart with considering some of these has was almost totally um, uh, snuffed out uh, years and years and years ago. It's, I mean, I'm reminded, not that I'm reminding myself of being Billy Graham, but uh, there's a part in his biography, if you ever read it, where he was um, confronted with the higher criticism and kind of a lot of the doubts about the veracity of scripture and things. And he went out on a on a walk and, you know, just prayed deeply. Um, and, and before the Lord and said, if I'm going to, if I'm going to do this with my life, then I can't have this type of, uh, fear about your word. And, you know, he said, of course, I forget the exact quote, but, but ostensibly he certainly evinced a man that was confident in the revealed word of God, the rest of his ministry. And so I, I'm grateful for that in my own life. Um, but I'm also doubly grateful for people who are continuing to, pick up the defense um, of the of the scriptures and uh, or, and preach it and teach it afresh for every generation. I, I want to go back just one second to the, the question of uh, literary device, because I I mean, I, I'm not I know that Dr. McGrew has uh, scholarship wise just you know, probably could overwhelm me in a second. But, yeah. but, but, All but I combined. I, yeah, right. right. <laughs> so I'm not trying to be the you know snotty student you know <laughs> my professor doesn't know anything but um it, but i do think a careful study of the gospels will show that that they are they're they're they are definitely shaping their narratives for a point like for you know mark's gospel for example it starts off with this declaration that jesus is the son of god right that the, he is the he is the christ and the son of the son of god but then you know the question then becomes what kind of what kind of christ is he Right. So, you, so, and the disciples, when they're called, they see him do all these miracles. They think, oh, you know, great. He's going to be the great warrior Messiah that we've always wanted. Um, and, and so, and that kind of culminates uh, with Peter saying, well, I think you're the, uh, you're the Christ. Right. Just before Peter does that, there's this, that odd incident where Jesus oh, tries to heal a man born blind, or no, 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 not tries to, but he does. He heals, Jesus never tries to heal he does, when he, when he heals somebody. He does. But he heals a man born blind, but he does in these stages where like he, he touches, he rubs right. his butt in the eyes, and, he, and the guy kind of sees, but he's fuzzy about it. He sees, okay, I see people, but they're like trees. And then so Jesus does it again, and then uh, then he he opens his eyes and he, he sees clearly, right? That is the model of Mark's gospel because Peter saying right next, right after that, you are the Christ. That's Peter seeing he sees, but not clearly. Uh, so right after that, directly after that, the rest of Mark's gospels, the Mark, the, 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 the miracles drop off a lot. Very few miracles. The, the, the cheering crowds <laughs> drop off a lot. And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, well, I've got to die now. I just want you to know I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not. And they have that little argument. But then they, but from that point on, you get this kind of lesson. This is, the, this is what it means to be the Christ until the cross, right? And at the cross, what happens? He dies. Who speaks? Centurion. Surely this man is the son of God. Boom. You see clearly, right? That Mark is, Mark is definitely, there's a, such a literary beauty to Mark, the way Mark has designed that gospel. It's just so tight. But just for clarity's sake, I'm not hearing you say that Mark is inventing stories that didn't no, happen. No, these all happen. No, these all happen. He's just putting them in there 
choosing what to emphasize. He's, he's, when... But he's, he's, he's arranging his material because he's telling a story. These are all true things, but they're, they're arranged in a, in, a, in a way that tell the story that Mark wants to tell. And I'm not saying that they're even out of chronological order. I'm just saying he leaves things in, he puts these right. things out. Uh, Matthew, or, or John's gospel is all separated around all the feasts, right? The, the Passover, the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of the, of the Tabernacles. They're all arranged around the feast, and it's almost entirely in Jerusalem. And it's almost entirely, I mean, he just skips over the first year of Jesus's ministry almost. And John has the benefit of hindsight. He probably has read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So each one of these gospels are shaped purposefully and, and definitely literarily, whether or not these are devices that are, that are, that are in use in, in other writings of the first century, it doesn't matter. They're devices that the gospel writers are using. I mean, to, to John it. specifically says that he chose the stories right. to include right. so yeah. that you might come to faith. Exactly. Right. Well, I do think, um, for pulling back from the specifics a little bit, that the sort of the suspicion and the the lack of confidence in the authority of Scripture within the sort of mainline church, you know, was the was the poison pill that has um, is still working its way out, but it will be its downfall because sentiments like, you know, I don't like a certain story in the Old Testament, and therefore that couldn't have been authoritative or revealed very quickly, as we pointed out before, become, well, I don't like this sort of prohibition here or this, um, you know, Paul may or may not have written this sentence. And we know that we, of course, know that Jesus said uh, John 3.16, but we don't really know anything else other than that in the whole Bible. And so then the problem is the church becomes is sentimentalized and ungrounded, which is a recipe for, you know, what does C.S. Lewis say? The disagreement is not between faith and reason, but but imagination and sentiment. You know, it's like this idea that you just start saying, well, what seems good to us, and if the Holy Spirit even exists, you know, I mean, uh, to paraphrase Acts, it becomes the, the way that the quote-unquote church operates. And we see this you know, we saw this firsthand from the birth, the the birthplace of modern historical criticism when we were in Berlin, and you know saw the fruit of it in various uh, professors who were ordained, not mine, um, I, I can assure you, but not uh, my doctor father, but um, other professors running around the appropriately named Schleiermacher School of uh, Theology, um, who could simultaneously be ordained in a church and also claim no belief in an actual transcendent God. You know, because I mean, for instance, you know, and these are. I mean, this is the logical ultimate outworking of of a uh, destabilizing cancer that lies at the heart of this question about biblical authority because i talk to people about this all the time is that there's no uh, we have we've had 2000 years of, of pouring over these documents in all of their various forms and people have people much smarter than you and i are have devoted their lives to all of the all of the questions that you're presenting me with and i can i can then i say like well i don't know a lot of the answers to these questions because frankly they aren't ones that keep me up at night we have other questions questions we could talk about at length, but these particular questions, let's go find the answer and, or I can direct you towards the actual scholars because they are there. And then the question finally will become, are you submitting yourself to the possibility or the existence of a God who has claimed to communicate it in an authoritative way, or are you going to continue to stand above and sort of make arbitrary judgments about what you consider to be divinely inspired or not? And I think that's that's not a recipe for, again, with no, no direct connection to Dr. McGrew, but, but the way that I've seen it, particularly in the Episcopal Church, you know, something much different, obviously, than she um, was dealing with in the ETS and things. But, but um, the way that I've seen it is essentially 
the Bible becomes a uh, sort of a kind of a collection of moral sort of morality tales that are that are picked and chosen at will, uh, somewhat arbitrarily, to defend um, already extant points of um, sort of theolo- quote unquote theology about a God that is just a creation of some individual person's uh, sort of making, which is, you know, which is really surprising why no one wants to go to that church anymore. You know, I don't understand. Like, what, that's, um, yeah, that's that's the that's the danger of, of McGrew's first and primary reason for rejecting inerrancy. Certainly the danger, yes. With which is because God wouldn't do that, right? God, my, a God that I believe in. Yeah, the God in that not, I believe in wouldn't do X, Y, or Z. So, right. Well, you know. And you can start with something really horrible, like the, the or from a, horrible from a 21st century Western standpoint, the, the, um, Conquest, conquest right. But then it could just easily, just as easily be, you know, complementarianism or, or you know, my, my God would never say that a woman should submit to her husband. No, but that's exactly where right. it goes. Because, right, exactly. because we've seen it explicitly stated that this supposedly new emphasis on inerrancy was basically used. I'm surprised it hasn't been called racist yet. I'm sure it will at some point, you know, but it's been yeah. used as a, to- as a tool for um, patriarchal, you know, uh, sort of privilege and all of the same, you know, the white evangelical monsters that everyone's writing about right now. And this is uh, considered to be a a novel tool dragged up by this relatively new sociological phenomenon. And as you pointed out in the beginning, Matt, that's just patently false on its face. If you do any sort of research or any like a deeper, deeper digging, but the problem is, as we know, is if that's what you want to hear, then you, you know, you can put that in your, just, you read that and you agree with it. And so you keep moving and so say, whatever you wanted to reject about whatever the Bible said, you now have the defense for. And so that's, that's where we are as a culture right now, because uh, people would love to eat up these books that have all of the reasons why you don't have to believe the Bible all the while laboring under guilt, fear, and shame, and the just condemnation of the law, needing the actual truth of the scripture to be real in their lives, which is that Jesus has come to save sinners. And yet, right. and yet, you know, that's the double bind of rejecting the, the, the Bible, is that you reject its, not only its, its diagnosis, but its cure. And that's where, um, you know, that's the tragedy of the whole thing. In- in seminary, I had one professor who was Orthodox, I think. No, maybe two, two, two Orthodox professors. One of them left after the first year, but I, I remember him giving me, a, a, he taught a lesson on Orthodoxy, not Eastern Orthodoxy, but Orthodoxy, what is Orthodoxy? Um, and he, the first time I heard it, I'm sure it's been said by many people many times, but it's holding everything together the scriptures say. So even if we, our minds can't work out how what the scripture says is consistent with the nature of God or the, or the, or what, what one passage says over here is consistent with what, what this other passage says over here, orthodoxy consists in holding it all together Amen. and not denying any part of it. So the, and, and heresy always tries to work out, tries to work out some kind of consistency. So uh, at least surface consistency. So, you know, Martian could not figure out the, the, the grace of the New Testament working with the Old Testament. So he just cuts off the Old Testament, right? And then uh, Arius can't figure out how one, one, two persons can be, or one God can have numerous persons within his being. So we just cut off the, the persons and make it, you know, one being one person. That's how, or that's how heresy works. When you don't hold intention, things that seem 
they're not, but that seem to be contradictions, but they're just paradoxes. You can't hold those intentions and say, well, because the Bible says this, I have to believe it. I'm not sure. sure how it works out together, but I'm going to believe it. If you can't do that, then you've, you've already begun the walk that takes you to a process. Right. Wait, and, and, and the promise is that over time, um, by the power of the Holy Spirit in the further conformity to Christ, like these tensions it, do not necessarily get resolved this side of heaven, but the the weight and the fear of them begin to dissipate and turn into reverential awe. I mean, right. that's what that's what is happening in Romans 9, 10, and 11, I think, um, at the end of 11, right before 12, you know, what does Paul do after going through this great discursus on the fate of final fate of Israel, um, God's promises, you know, the, the, the Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, you know, all these, these, um, these terrible ideas, you know, Luther calls it some of the, the most terrifying things in the Bible where he says, about the vessel fit for wrath, you know, where he talks about how couldn't he as the potter do what he wants, you know, like the owner of the vineyard and the 11th hour labor. And yet at the end of that excursus, and I think it's a model for us yeah. um, as Christians, Paul just falls flat on his face and says how unsearchable and amazing are the riches and majesty of God. You know, it's basically, it, it sends him into prayer. And then the very next sentence is therefore in view of these things, you know, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, um, uh, holy and acceptable God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Like, so, you know, I, I have really thought about that many times over my adult Christian life. Cause again, referencing what I was talking about before, having kind of hit this, this snag when I was in college and, um, and having the Lord really deliver me from it in almost just the same way. Like, I don't have exactly that. I mean, this is silly, but I don't know the exact answer between, you know, divine sovereignty and free will and, or to the extent that it exists and election and final justification and limited atonement. All these things are, are um, in the Bible or, or at least we're, or, or theological concepts that we have to hold and consider. But at the end of the day, all of them over time and in the context of the church and with the body of Christ and in the company of faithful people has have deepened my 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 sense of all in reverence for God. Um, and I can I mean, I can talk about some of these things without any resolution in, in very moving ways uh, with people. And I've you know, and we, we get into this often. We've talked about this before on this on this podcast uh, with respect to the question of predestination, you know, and our Anglican sort of understanding of that, and our thirty nine articles where they talk about it. And you know, at the end of the day, I don't, I'm not uh, able to say definitively, yes, you're in, no, you're not. You know, these sorts of things um, from a from the, the the preordained knowledge of God in eternity, you know. But I do know what He has given us to say that is trustworthy and grounded in himself. So, which means it's infallible and inerrant and, and above all true. And that is um, grounded and given to us in his word upon which we stand and then are able to speak with confidence to um, the doubts and fears of people, because we know that he has spoken and he, he does not lie, you know? So I think, yeah, I mean, that's where I am on the, the issue. I mean, I think I'm glad people are still exercised by it. And I know, you know, every now and then I'm glad I have books where I can give them to people or recommend them to people or YouTube channels now. But I do think that that uh, if you are in a position where this is something that is um, sort of kinked you as, you know, like a hose or whatever, then you should double your prayers about the Lord delivering you from suspicion of him uh, and his word, because that will um, that will ultimately bring you farther away from him, not closer. I would say, too, that if if the Bible were just so easy to figure out, if, if it were if if we as finite beings had no difficulty trying to understand it at all, 
that I would have a hard time believing that it's the word of an infinite omnipotent <laughs> God. I mean, the fact that we finite creatures are having sometimes hard times putting things together should not surprise us if God is the author. That should be exactly what we should expect to find. We should expect to find uh, paradoxes and things that, 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 are, that stretch us and that we just can't figure out in this life. And that should actually verify its, its truthfulness, Amen. not cause us to doubt. It seems like no matter what, we are called to place ourselves in submission under the word of God rather than as arbiters over it. And we should fall on our faces and pray and hear the good news once again that is for us in the word of God that Jesus Christ came to save foolish sinners like us. Well, we have reached the end of our time this week. Um, we're thankful for you taking the time to listen. If you want to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 